Okay, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of March 26th, 2022, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And we're going to be starting off with a little intellectual game on this podcast. I challenge you all to guess the source of the quote that I'm about to read, which is extremely relevant to current events. Quote, in all essential points, Russia has steadily, one after another, gained her ends, thanks to the ignorance, dullness, and consequent inconsistency and cowardice of Western governments. The action of the Western powers has either been annihilated by squabbles among themselves, mostly arriving from their common ignorance of Eastern matters, and from petty jealousies, which must have been entirely incomprehensible to any Eastern understanding, or their action has been in the direct interest of Russia alone. These constant and successful encroachments of Russia have at last roused in the Western cabinets of Europe a very dim and distant apprehension of the approaching danger. End quote. So what Russophobic, neoconservative, Western imperialist warmonger do you think said that? Well, what might have tipped you off is the rather um, stuffy and archaic language and the use of the uh, female pronoun to refer to Russia, which is kind of old-fashioned. That might have tipped you off, but that'll be the only thing to tip you off, that this quote is actually not from the current war in Ukraine, but from the Crimean War of 1853 to 1856. But here's where I'm really faking you out. The authors of that quote were Karl Marx and Frederick Engels in an essay entitled The Russian Menace to Europe, originally published in the New York Tribune in April 1853, concerning the Crimean War, which was then just getting underway, which briefly saw, if you know the history, Russia invading the Turkish Empire and then being driven back and humbled after Britain and France jumped in on the side of the Turks. Now, uh, there is actually a reason that I'm playing this dirty trick on you, dear listeners. It actually is in the service of making a political point. And what particularly inspired me was uh, this news story, which appeared I read it in um, the right-wing Washington Examiner on March 16th, taking glee that the name of Karl Marx had been removed from uh, a study hall at the University of Florida, paradoxically in response to the war in Ukraine, which makes zero sense whatsoever. I'm going to uh, quote the University of Florida Director of Strategic Communications, who I will refrain from uh, mentioning by name, who I will spare the humiliation of mentioning by name, quote, given current events in Ukraine and elsewhere in the world, we determined it was appropriate to remove the name of Karl Marx that was placed on a study group room at the University of Florida in 2014, end quote. Okay, University of Florida, Director of Strategic Communications, what are you thinking? It amazes me 
how the illusion that contemporary Russian imperialism has anything to do with communism permeates both the right and the left, like some weird Cold War hangover, like my parents calling the refrigerator an icebox. Putinism is a form of fascism and utterly antithetical to Marxism. Marx and Engels were repulsed by the political tendency represented by Putin, which already existed in embryo in their own time. Okay, here's another quote from that same period with amazing analogies to our own. I'll provide some annotation on that after the quote. And um, listen carefully, because it's a quote within a quote. It's a quote that actually contains another quote within it. So to begin, quote, We have been assured by the best sources that the present Russian czar has sent a telegram to certain courts wherein, among other things, it is stated that, quote, reading from this uh, supposed text from the czar, of the courts of Western Europe, the moment Austria shall irrevocably ally herself to the West or commit any overt act of hostility against Russia, Alexander II will place himself at the head of the pan-Slavist movement and change his title of emperor of all the Russians into that of emperor of all the Slavs, end quote. This declaration of Alexander's, if authentic, is the first plain-spoken word since the war began. It is the first step towards giving the war, frankly and openly, that European character, which has hitherto been lurking behind all sorts of pretexts and pretenses, protocols and treaties. Turkey's independence and existence is thrown into the background, Who is to rule in Constantinople is no longer the question, but who is to command all Europe? The Slavic race, long divided by internal contest, repelled toward the east by Germans, subjugated in part by Turks, Germans, Hungarians, quietly reuniting its branches by the gradual rise of pan-Slavism, for the first time asserts its unity and in doing so, declares war to the knife against the Romano-Celtic and Germanic races, which have hitherto ruled Europe. Pan-Slavism is now, from a creed, turned into a political program, with 800,000 bayonets to support it. It leaves Europe only one alternative, submission to the Slavic yoke, or destruction forever of the center of its offensive strength, Russia, end quote. Frederick Engels, an essay entitled Pan-Slavism and the Crimean War, published in the German journal New Order Zeitung in April 1855. And that um, supposed warning from Tsar Alexander II to neutral Austria echoes precisely Vladimir Putin's warnings to, uh, you know, neutral Finland and Sweden that they will face military consequences if they abandon their neutrality and align with the West, with NATO. 
And the talk of the war not being merely about Turkey, but who will rule Europe. Well, again, you just have to exchange Turkey for Ukraine. And the quote is completely applicable to the current situation. This war is fundamentally about who will rule Europe. And ultimately, for reasons of history and geography, that is decisive in the question of who will rule the world. And that is what makes this moment so perilous. Another quote, quote, this war, the Crimean War, was mainly fought by the most advanced and progressive governments, with progressive in quotation marks, in Europe, namely England and France, against that most hateful of autocracies, by which the writer means Russia, of course. Russia is decidedly a conquering nation, and was so for a century, until the great movement of 1789 called into potent activity an antagonist of formidable nature. We mean the European Revolution, the explosive force of democratic ideas and man's native thirst for freedom. Since that epoch, there have been, in reality, but two powers on the continent of Europe, Russia and absolutism, and the revolution and democracy. For the moment, the revolution seems to be suppressed, but it lives and is deeply feared as ever. Witness the terror of the reaction at the news of the late rising in Milan, which is a uh, reference to an uprising in uh, the city that year, 1853, against its then Austrian rulers. Continue with the text. But let Russia get possession of Turkey, and her strength is increased nearly half, and she becomes superior to all the rest of Europe put together. Such an event would be an unspeakable calamity to the revolutionary cause. End quote. The Real Issue in Turkey by Frederick Engels, first published in the New York Daily Tribune, again, April 1853. Okay, just to go over in very brief outline, the basic facts of the Crimean War, just to give these quotations I've been reading some context for people who need to brush up a little bit on the history. The Crimean War had its ostensible origins in Russian demands to um, exercise official protectorate status over the Orthodox Christian subjects of the Turkish Ottoman Empire. Just like Moscow today claims to be acting on behalf of the Russian-speaking population in Ukraine, <coughs> forgive me, now, when the Turks did not give them the terms that they wanted, the Russians invaded and occupied what were uh, called at that time the Danubian principalities, of which there were two, Moldavia and Wallachia, more or less conforming to contemporary Moldova and Romania, although the borders were somewhat different back then and uh, called the Danubian Principalities because they were situated at the mouth of the Danube, where it meets the Black Sea. Okay, all this happened in um, July 1853. Russia invaded the Danubian Principalities, which were, uh, again, um, ostensibly independent, but in reality under um, Turkish suzerainty, as it was called not officially a part of the Turkish Ottoman Empire, but um, owing political allegiance to Constantinople. 
In response to the Russian invasion of the Danubian principalities, previously neutral Austria threatened to um, enter the war. Russia withdrew from Moldavia and Wallachia, and they were occupied by Austria in August 1854. The next month, September 1854, the Turks, joined by the British and the French under the Second Empire of Napoleon III, sailed across the Black Sea and landed troops in Russian Crimea and began a year-long siege of the Russian fortress of Sevastopol. That same, which remained the, uh, the principal base of the Russian Black Flea seat, even after it became a part of an independent Ukraine in 1991. Okay, the next month, October 1854, saw the Battle of Balaklava, which was commemorated in the Charge of the Light Brigade by the English poet Lord Tennyson. In uh, January 1855, Sardinia-Piedmont, basically proto-Italy, entered the war, again on the side of the Turks and Britain and France. And uh, finally, on September 11, 1855, the Russians evacuated Sebastopol. After Austria threatened to join the Allies, Russia accepted peace terms, and the resulting Treaty of Paris signed on March 30th, 1856, not only guaranteed the integrity of Ottoman Turkey, but obliged Russia to surrender much of the territory then known as Bessarabia to Moldavia. And the Danubian principalities, in addition to Moldavia gaining territory, both of the Danubian principalities gained greater independence because they had been occupied by Austria after the Russians withdrew. So the Turks, the ostensible victors of the war, were also compelled to seize control of them. And they became the colonel of the contemporary states of Romania and Moldova. So the war was a victory for the emerging system of national sovereignty and a defeat for imperialism and absolutism, both Russian and Turkish, or at least it could be seen that way, and apparently was by Marx and Engels, who in their dogma assumed that Western bourgeois democracy would eventually be swept away in the dialectical leap to socialism, but that meanwhile it was advancing the historical process forward, while in their view, Eastern despotism and absolutism was holding it back. Now, a lot of contemporary Marxists tried to clean up this reality and uh, argue that, you know, Marx and Engels were um, describing the thinking of the great powers of the West rather than expressing their own thinking and saying what the Western powers needed to do in their own interest rather than in the interests of the international proletariat. But I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I think that any objective reading of this text, and not viewing it through the lens of, of you know, uh, contemporary values and wishful thinking, indicates that they meant what they were saying. It's also been claimed that um, Engels was a lot more extreme and crude in his Russophobia than Marx was. I'm going to read another quote from Engels from the same period, also very telling. Uh, I have to confess that I am not entirely convinced of the provenance of this quote, 
because I have only been able to find it in one text, and it's not actually by Engels. It's from the essay Pan-Slavism in the book European Ideologies, published by New York University in 1948, and the quote is footnoted to the collected works of the Russian literary critic Vasily Gippius, published in Leningrad in 1939. So, attributed to Engels in a work which was actually published in the Soviet Union, at a minimum, quote, in the works of several Slavic dilettantes in the field of history, there arose an absurd anti-historical current, the aim of which was to subordinate the civilized West to the barbarian East, the city to the village, trade, industry, and education to the primitive agriculture of the Slavic serfs. But behind this comical theory, there stood the terrible reality of the Russian Empire, of that empire which by every movement manifested a pretension to consider the whole of Europe the property of the Slavic tribe, and in particular of its only energetic part, Russia. Okay, and finally, one more quote from Karl Marx which definitely does appear to be authentic, from a uh, collection of letters published posthumously in 1897 under the title of The Eastern Question, letters that he had actually written back in the 1850s in regard to the Crimean War. And uh, <laughs> what I just love about this quote is that it's, um, it positively reeks of the most sneering sarcasm. Quote, Russia has all along been glorified for the forbearance and generosity of her august master, meaning the Tsar, who has not only condescended to cover the naked and shameful subservience of Western cabinets, but has displayed the magnanimity of devouring Turkey piece by piece instead of swallowing her at one mouthful. Russian diplomacy has thus rested on the timidity of Western statecraft, end quote. Okay, now to provide some further context here, there's a, you know, a theory or a, a means of understanding the dynamics of Russian history, which um, still exists today, but was just, you know, congealing back in the day of Marx and Engels, which saw two contending currents within Russian political culture, the westernizers versus the forces of what was variously known as pan-Slavism or Eurasianism, the latter phrase uh, in greater currency today. Uh, the first strain being a generally uh, more democratic strain in Russian politics, which sees the nation as a part of the West, or at least aspires to join the West, and on the other hand, a um, so-called Slavophile or Eurasianist tendency, which rejects foreign influences and seeks a closed empire. Now, I first became aware of this uh, theory a long time ago when I read the book Black Hundred, The Rise of the Extreme Right in Russia by Walter Lacker, published way back in 1993. 
in the immediate aftermath of the Soviet collapse. And it was in that book that I first became aware of Alexander Dugin, who back then was, you know, a rising star of the ascendant Russian far right, and is today ensconced at the highest levels of power in Russia, behind the scenes, as it were, as, uh, you know, the intellectual mastermind of Putin's revanchist imperial project. So, according to this theory, there's been a sort of a pendulum effect that began with the rise of Russian nationalism, with one current that wedded nationalism to modernization and westernization, and the other that saw, initially, the original conception was the view of the Slavic race as the special protector of the Orthodox faith, and rejected modernity and the West. Now, the first great modernizer and westernizer was Peter the Great, and the uh, second was uh, Tsar Alexander II, who uh, came to the throne at the start of the Crimean War, but actually turned out to be a modernizer. Famously freed the serfs in the Great Emancipation of 1861. Interestingly, two years before the similar Great Emancipation in the United States, and uh, prior to that, the serfs had been legally bound to the land and their masters in conditions very close to slavery. Alexander II also lifted restrictions on Jews, having access to higher education and the bureaucracy. And uh, this all came to an abrupt halt when he was assassinated by a Narodnik revolutionary in 1881. After that, there was a period of backlash in which the so-called pogroms were unleashed against the Jews, mass acts of ethnic cleansing, in which um, some four million Jews were forced to flee Russia. And it was during this period that the first great intellectual mastermind of Pan-Slavism became very influential, Mikhail Katkov, whose doctrines were taken up by the court of the Tsar, and who appears to have been to Tsar Alexander III, the same kind of behind-the-scenes influence that Rasputin would later be for Nicholas II, and that Alexander Dugin is for Vladimir Putin today. And the, uh, the backlash deepened under Tsar Nicholas, who um, unleashed the Black Hundreds, the proto-fascist paramilitary formation, to um, execute the pogroms in a more orderly fashion. <laughs> Until finally he was, um, of course, overthrown in the revolution of 1917. All right, so now let's take a <clears throat> rather sweeping overview of how this part of the world, Eastern Europe, has been viewed by the intellects behind the leaders of the great powers, East and West, over the next century and change. Now, uh, Marx and Engels were concerned with historical process. Most of these other leaders were more concerned with geography and race, and were um, essentially right-wing. And there was kind of a similar trajectory to their thinking both East and West, but in the West it was more concerned with geostrategy and maintaining the primacy of the Western states. And in the East generally had more of a taint of blood and soil cultism. I'm going to add the caveat that uh, while I've read a good deal of Marx and Engels, I have not actually read these guys 
who I'm about to discuss. I've just read about them and principally on the internet, but I've um, gleaned the sense of their basic ideas and I would like to actually read their works, particularly the first one who's seen as the great granddaddy of this tradition in the West, the British geographer and statesman Halford John Mackinder who, in his essay of 1904, The Geographical Pivot of History, posed his famous dictum, quote, Who rules East Europe commands the heartland. Who rules the heartland commands the world island. Who rules the world island commands the world. Now, in his view, the heartland is Central Asia and the immediate bordering lands from the Volga to the Yangtze, which he considered to be history's pivot area, control of this being determinant in making or breaking of empires, going all the way back to Alexander and Genghis and Tamerlane and so on. The world island is Eurasia, to which he added the Mediterranean littoral of Africa, the sections of the world island outside the pivot area he dubbed the inner or marginal crescent stretching from Western Europe to Manchuria in a great semicircle enclosing the pivot area on the south. The rest of the world he considered to be the outer crescent incorporating the Americas, Africa south of the Maghreb, and Oceania. The dominant world power being in North America would have been, in his view, an historical anomaly, and one that seems to be approaching an imminent end in any case. But with the rise of Western Europe to ascendancy, control of Eastern Europe was seen as uh, critical as it was the gateway between the new center of power and the traditional pivot area, in the theory of Halford John Mackinder. His ideas were further developed by um, Nicholas J. Spikeman, who brought the doctrine to America. He was an Englishman who became a scholar at Yale, whose two uh, works, both published in the 1940s, were The Geography of the Peace, meaning the post-war Pax Americana, and America's Strategy in World Politics. He broke the world up into the heartland, Mackinder's so-called pivot area, the Rimland, which more or less conformed to Mackinder's inner or marginal crescent, and the offshore islands and continents, Mackinder's outer or insular crescent. Uh, he de-emphasized, Spikeman de-emphasized the heartland somewhat in terms of its importance to global dominance, in light of the growing importance of sea power and the emergence of air power. So he updated the dictum thusly, who controls the Rimland controls Eurasia. Who controls Eurasia controls the destinies of the world. End quote. And uh, his work on geopolitics and geostrategy led him to be known as the, quote, godfather of containment. Of course, the great doctrine which was taken up by the United States and the West in the Cold War. And he could sort of be seen as a bridge between Mackinder and a uh, contrary viewpoint, 
which was emphasizing the importance of sea power rather than control of the heartland, which was propounded by Alfred Thayer Mahan in his book The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, 1890. Uh, Another theorist of the criticality of Eastern Europe, but um, in the service of German imperialism and ultimately Nazism, was Karl Haushofer, who was apparently the first to coin the term Lebensraum, or living space, which was taken up by Hitler as the official doctrine of um, Nazi expansionism and genocide. The notion that the Germans had the inherent right as a superior people to expand east and subjugate the Slavs or push them out of the way in a great program of Drang Nach Osten, if I am pronouncing it correctly, pushed to the east. And then there was a very critical Russian figure who adopted a fascist take on these ideas, who remains all too influential today, Ivan Ilyin, who really developed uh, contemporary Eurasianism, looking to um, geography and nationalism as an alternative to class struggle and Bolshevism. And uh, he saw the Russians, or he posited that the Russians were a land people by virtue of occupying, you know, a huge land mass with only limited access to the sea, who were by nature hardy and righteous in contradistinction to the sea people of the European fringe, Britain, etc., who were cosmopolitan and dissolute and decadent. Ilyin opposed the Bolshevik Revolution, of course. He was exiled by Lenin in 1922 and uh, settled in Germany, where he became an anti-communist philosopher and a uh, big fan of Benito Mussolini, who took power in Italy that same year, 1922. And then, jumping forward to 1933, he became an enthusiastic backer of the Nazi takeover of Germany, which he extolled in an essay entitled National Socialism, A New Spirit. Now, Ivan Ilyin would be a major influence on Alexander Dugin, and his biggest fanboy today is, you guessed it, Vladimir Putin, who in 2005 had the remains of Ivan Ilyin repatriated from Switzerland to be reinterred in Moscow. Putin personally consecrated the grave in 2009, and in his comments that day stated, quote, paraphrasing Ivan Ilyin, it is a crime to even speak of the separation of Russia and Ukraine, end quote. Again, paraphrasing Ilyin's belief that to um, even acknowledge the existence of Ukraine is to be a mortal enemy of Russia. In 2006, Putin brought back to Russia the personal papers of Ilyin from the University of Michigan, where they had ended up. And Putin has since cited and quoted Ilyin in his annual presidential addresses, and especially emphasizing Ilyin's theories in his justifications for reunification, quote-unquote, with Ukraine. And Ilyin's direct intellectual inheritor, Alexander Dugin, is today literally calling for 
genocide, quote-unquote, of Ukrainians, as we noted in last week's podcast. Now, the contemporary scholar to read about all of this is um, Timothy Snyder. I have read um, sections of his book, The Road to Unfreedom, Random House 2019, and he writes that Putin has used Ilyin's ideas about geopolitics to portray Ukraine, Europe, and the United States as existential dangers to Russia, quote-unquote. And certainly, you know, the great geostrategic thinkers of the West have definitely perceived Ukraine as a, a critical piece on the global chessboard in their long struggle for encirclement and containment of Russia. I mean, this is certainly true. And this thinking well predates the Cold War, going back to Mackinder and his contemporary, the uh, World War I era, British statesman and diplomat Lord Curzon, who famously coined the phrase Great Game to refer to the uh, geopolitical contest between Britain and Russia for control of Asia, particularly Central Asia, Afghanistan being very critical at that point. And uh, the great inheritor of um, the traditional Lord Curzon today is uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was uh, President Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, who wrote a book in um, 1997 entitled The Grand Chessboard, American Primacy and Its Geostrategic Imperatives, the title being an obvious homage to Lord Curzon and his notion of the great game. And uh, it's amazing how prescient this book is. I just went back and reread it. He has a map on page 85 in which he uh, shows his concept of the critical core of European security, where he draws a, um, a great line around France, Germany, Poland, and Ukraine, and anticipates way back in 1997 that Ukraine was going to eventually seek NATO membership. And again, this is just five years after a newly independent Ukraine declared that it would be neutral. And Brzezinski was already anticipating the, uh, you know, precisely the ways in which Russian revanchism, or at least perceived Russian revanchism, would draw Ukraine into the arms of the West. And he discusses uh, on page 112 how some of the post-Soviet states were deeply suspicious that so-called integration of the post-Soviet states into the Commonwealth of Independent States, the CIS, the loose post-Soviet formation, which includes most but not all of the former republics of the Soviet Union, uh, viewed uh, reintegration, many of these states viewed reintegration as a, um, a code word for renewed subordination. Quote, opposition to Moscow's notion of integration was particularly strong in Ukraine. Its leaders quickly recognized that such integration, he puts it in quotes, especially in light of Russian reservations regarding the legitimacy of Ukrainian independence, would eventually lead to the loss of national sovereignty. Moreover, the heavy-handed Russian treatment of the new Ukrainian state, its unwillingness to grant recognition of Ukraine's borders, its questioning of Ukraine's right to Crimea, 
its insistence on exclusive extraterritorial control over the port of Sevastopol, gave the aroused Ukrainian nationalism a distinctively anti-Russian edge. The self-identification of Ukrainian nationhood during the critical formative stage in the history of the new state was thus diverted from its traditional anti-Polish or anti-Romanian orientation and became focused instead on opposition to any Russian proposals for a more integrated CIS. For a special Slavic community with Russia and Belarus, or for a Eurasian Union, deciphering them as Russian imperial tactics, end quote. And of course, Eurasian Union is precisely the term which has now been taken up openly by Alexander Dugan, Putin's Rasputin. Now, he might have actually been talking about it then, when Brzezinski wrote that book back in 1997, but then Dugan was still a relatively obscure figure. He didn't have, you know, the ear of the new czar, as it were. All right, now you can so, sort of see a, um, you know, a perverse glee in the writings of Brzezinski that uh, Russian revanchism would give uh, the West leverage to exploit to woo Ukraine into NATO. But Russia also had a role in this dynamic, and certainly Russian revanchism was real then and is far more real today. And I'm going over all of these theories and ideas, not because I endorse any of them, neither the Russophobia <laughs> of Marx and Engels or the negative Eurasianism, if you will, the anti-Eurasianism of Mackinder and Brzezinski, or the positive embrace of Eurasianism by Dugan and Putin. No, I'm going over all these ideas to emphasize the fact that, you know, the um, perceived criticality of Eastern Europe in military and geopolitical theory, East and West, makes this conflict all the more dangerous. It's critical to understanding why Ukraine is a potential flashpoint for world war. And that point, hopefully, does not need to be emphasized. What does need to be emphasized, and I'm speaking here particularly to some of my <clears throat> friends on the left, is that to dismiss any criticism of Russian revanchism and empire building as Russophobia is denialism that further muddies the intellectual atmosphere, and makes escalation more likely, not less. Portraying the Ukrainians as the aggressors, or essentially arguing that, you know, they had it coming by getting too close to NATO, is making excuses for a war of aggression, and is ultimately pro-fascist. Russia, at this moment, is lurching into fascism. Just as the U.S. was approaching the brink of fascism for four years under Donald Trump, well, Russia is now going over that brink in no uncertain terms. And it's, you know, particularly ironic, to return to where we started, to be hearing this Putin shilling talk from people who profess to be Marxists. Marx was rooting for the West against Russia, no matter how the contemporary Marxist may try to clean this reality up. I think it's evident from any objective reading 
of his actual words. Now, why is there all of this confusion about this question today? Well, what happened in the intervening years, which Marx never foresaw, was a communist revolution in Russia. Marx thought that it would have happened in England and France and Germany first, not Russia. And then Stalin, reviving Russian nationalism in communist guise and making a pact with Hitler in 1939 for not quite two years, which established a tradition of what has been variously called national Bolshevism or red-brown politics or Eurasianism, in which the tendency that Marx decried under the empire of the czars, you know, ironically began to reemerge under Soviet rule. Now, this went into abeyance under Khrushchev and was utterly repudiated under Gorbachev, but it began to revive in the backlash to Russia's humiliation after the Soviet collapse, and now unequivocally has taken state power with Vladimir Putin, who, you know, glorifies Stalin along with the czars, but interestingly, doesn't have much good to say about Lenin. And in fact, has had some disparaging things to say about Vladimir Lenin, having, uh, you know, ceded too much to Ukrainian nationalism and the territory of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. But the tradition that Putin represents has nothing to do with Marx. Contemporary Russia is a savage capitalist oligarchic state, which is antithetical to everything. Putin's entire ideological program is antithetical to everything that Marx actually wrote. Now, am I arguing that because Marx and Engels did, we also have to root for the West at this juncture? Well, no. My purpose here is to call out both the right-wing anti-communist as well as the pseudo-left tankies who were soft on Putin for their ignorance and or hypocrisy. That's been my aim in this rant. I've been advocating a neither East nor West position since the renewed Cold War or the Cold War endgame of the 1980s. When I was working with a group of that name, neither East nor West, to support left-wing dissidents in the East Bloc, in the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact states, anarchists, democratic socialists, feminists, and ecologists who wanted demilitarization and neutrality in the new order and some kind of socialism with a human face. Now, uh, is a neither East nor West position still possible today, all these years later? even as polarized as things have become, and as thoroughly as that dream of demilitarization and neutrality and socialism with the human face has been betrayed? Well, that is a question which we will explore in the next podcast. This has been Bill Weinberg with The Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. We post a new podcast every weekend. Please support us on Patreon, join the Counter Vortex, join the Resistance, and rant on you next time.